following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session 12 on Morgoth's Ring, <clears throat> uh, which uh, I have a vague memory, but it's pretty vague uh, that I'd probably projected to get through the whole book in 12 sessions-ish, right? So there you go. Just goes to show you, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, tonight uh, is going to be super exciting because we are um, uh, going to, not, o not only are we going to finish The Laws and Customs Among the Eldar, uh, but we're going to start the next section, which is essentially a continuation of the same. Um, and I, yeah, we're not going to get too far too fast uh, during this whole section. It is almost amazing to me how fertile this question of the remarriage of Finway was for Tolkien's imagination, right? Um, how much has been prompted by this? Not only the world building that we've been looking at about like metaphysically, how do the elves work, right? Um, not only is he answering questions like that, but he is even being, you know, what we're, we'll see how far we can get into tonight or up to, uh, but uh, my highest aspirations for the evening involve getting into the debate among the Valar. A debate among the Valar. Like we got... Lines. Nienna speaks like she gets lines. She's never had lines. You know, so it's um amazing. It's amazing. Uh that that, you know, like Aule and Yavana disagreeing with each other in in uh uh in in debate and all that stuff. It's um it's amazing. So anyway, I, I just like it's when I kind of back up from it, it's just incredible to see because, of course, then somewhat I can't help but feel uh, anticlimactically, right? Christopher then just like resumes with, of course, the phase two of the Quinta, which is what we're theoretically in the middle of, right? What, to, you know, like now interrupting this like late draft of this text that we've read four times, uh, all of a sudden, boom, this like amazing. Um, uh, uh, you know, this amazing upwelling of, uh, of thought and creativity um, and stuff that so much of which I really, really, really wish had been published somewhere uh, in the Silmarillion or appended to the Silmarillion or uh, somewhere. Um, but uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's just kind of incredible. So looking forward to continuing with that, doing some Q&A with the Valar, um, hearing, like reading Mandos's official job description for crying out loud. I mean, oh my goodness, so much great stuff. So we're going to talk about that stuff. But first, I have an important announcement to make, and that is the book that we are going to be discussing next. Uh, so that's... Um, uh, are, you, are, are you ready? This is, uh, this is very exciting. Uh, because the answer is... 
Dante. We are doing Dante's Inferno uh, next time. So um, <laughs> Tomas says Inferno wins, Paradise lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's correct. Mythgard Academy is going straight to hell next uh, time. Uh, we are going uh, and we're going to be doing Dante's Inferno. Uh, the epic poetry wins. Uh, so uh, that's going to be uh, that's going to be pretty cool. Um, so the, tr- it's a, the I know the question that everyone is is asking um, translation Mandelbaum Alan Mandelbaum's translations is M A N D E L B A U M. Um, Alan Mandelbaum is the translation that I recommend. Let me also right off the top. Uh, recommend a uh, a resource that uh, should be really handy, uh, handy especially because it also has the entire Alan Mandelbaum translation available for free in a digital copy if you would like that. Um, and that is this website. It is called Digital Dante. So this is uh, uh, from Columbia University, my alma mater, digitaldante.columbia.edu. Um, just look, just Google Digital Dante and you'll find it. Um, and this is a super useful uh, resource for all of Dante. Um, and it's, so if you go, so you see, you've got all three of the Cantica with each, each canto here. So if you click on Inferno one here on this page, it brings you immediately to professor, uh, for, for, to professor Berellini's commentary, which is a little confusing, but if you click over here to text and translations, you will see, uh, this is the Alan Mandelbaum translation that I was, that I'm recommending here. Um, and you can see the Italian in, uh, in on the left hand column. So you can get to the, you can see the Italian and the Mandelbaum in parallel. If you want to compare Mandelbaum to another translation, the Longfellow translation, you can put the two English translations side by side. It's pretty cool. Uh, so, so, but anyway, I think it's really handy to be able to have the Italian. Keep in mind, I don't have Italian. This is why I don't do more with Dante than I do. I really like Dante, but I just, I just, I don't have the language to be able to do him justice. Um, so I myself do not speak Italian, but it's nevertheless still useful to be able to have that. There are a bunch of things uh, that you can see and find, even even as a total amateur uh, of the language, when you're able to put them side by side like that. Um, anyway, so. Uh, this is actually what I'm planning to use. People are ask, uh, have asked me about audio versions. Um, I don't think the Alan Mandelbaum verse translation is available in audio, but I wouldn't worry about that too much, actually. Um, there, uh, you can get the Mandelbaum translation in a digital version. Um, uh, you can, uh, If you want to get an audio version, you can get any audio version you like, any English translation you like, and that's okay. This is going to come as a shock. I'm going to say a shocking thing. You guys know what a dedicated audiophile I am. But I actually strongly dislike dislike reading poetry uh, in an audio-only version. Uh, And the reason for that is not that I don't... I mean, of course, you guys also know uh, how much I focus on the sound of poetry um, uh, when I read it and talk about it. But that's exactly why. Um, the number one reason that I don't like audiobook versions of poems is that audiobooks tend to be read by actors. 
and actors, I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't apologize. I ask for an apology, actually, from the acting profession because they tend to suck at poetry. I'm sorry, but it's true. They tend to suck at poetry because they tend to read poetry like it's a dramatic reading, like the, like it's like it's dramatic dialogue. And it's not dramatic dialogue. It's poetry. Right. Um, so I, and this is true, for instance, I was even I was sifting through. You'll see there's an audio uh, tab here on the Digital Dante Project. And this is a reading of the Italian, which is really cool. It's really great to be able to hear the Italian. But um, what you'll notice, what I notice anyway, the first thing that I notice when I listen to this Italian recording is that you can't even hear the rhymes. You can't hear the rhymes. And the rhyme is so important to Dante. Um, but the dude who is reading the Italian, I mean, the, the language sounds beautiful the way that he's reading it. Uh, and he's reading it with great feeling, but he's reading it with almost no attention to the meter and the rhyme. And that drives me bananas. Um, so these are some of the reasons why I tend to not like, uh, and besides which, although, as I said, I do really like, um, uh, uh, you know, I do really depend upon audio recordings. Poems, in order to really get the effect of poems, I need to have them not only in my ears, but like in my mouth. Right? I need to read them myself. So like, uh, I tend to not listen to audiobooks when I'm doing poetry. I tend to read it off, the, read it aloud off the page to myself. Uh, and it's short. This is the first, uh, you know, the first canto. It's 136 lines. Right, it's 136 lines of poetry. That's this, this. This is the whole first canto. Right, there are 34 of these in the Inferno, essentially. Um, I say essentially because there's the first one is kind of unofficially a prologue, uh, but it, it's it's part of the Inferno, so we'll certainly include it. Um, but anyway, we're gonna go. My plan is to to do three cantos a week, uh, so it's gonna be short reading assignments. Um, so we're looking at like you know. Fewer than 500 lines of poetry every week. Um, it's not going to be a huge chunk uh, to do. Uh, so, yeah, Kevin, three three per class is my plan. Um, I'm not going to even do three for the first class because we're going to spend some time looking at the verse form and stuff as well. So we're going to do we're going to do just this one for the first week. And then I'm going to try to do three a week after that. That I should be a little bit more specific to say that that's my going to be my exact plan. Um so, Zach, I do say so you can read the poem aloud, the text aloud, the translation aloud, but it's 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 less important because, of course, Mandelbaum is, is his is a good translation. Um, what you'll see, oh, it's hard to see because the text is tiny. Uh, let me see if I can uh, expand it here. Yes, I can. Good. OK. Um, well, that wasn't good, actually. Uh Okay, um, and maybe you can see it a little bit now. Uh, it's still pretty tiny, but anyhow. Um, actually, let me let me do this, and then put the Mandelbaum over here. Okay, um, it's uh, uh, it's not. This is not a version that relies upon... There are some rhyming, but it's not one that is trying to, to impose a rhyming scheme. But I don't like prose translations either. It's hard. Translating poetry is difficult, and therefore I am honestly like super hard to please with a, po with a poetry um, uh, uh, translation. Um, but anyway, um, so... Um, 
Yeah, so John, I don't have in mind a recommendation for an audiobook edition. I'm going to look around and see what I can find um, as far as audiobook editions are concerned, uh, you know, to see if there are any that I would give like a negative recommendation to. Um, but I will, um, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see about that. Um, I'll see if I, and uh, so uh, Ed, uh, who of course, and thanks again as always to Ed for doing all the work behind the scenes. Uh, the 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 uh, the head of the Council of the Wise with a mind of metal and wheels, who uh, tabulated all the votes and everything, and uh, uh, got all this stuff done. Anyway, Ed, Ed'll send out some information. I'll, I'll I'll get him a little bit more detail about this. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I will I will send out a little bit of information uh, about that, um, but um, anyway, okay. So that's uh, that's the plan. So we will talk about um, we will talk about Canto One. Uh, we'll start with you know our first class on, on Canto One, but of course we have to finish Morgoth's Ring first, which is still it's going to be a little while, right? We're not quite yet done. Uh, with Morgoth's ring, we haven't gotten to the Atherbeth yet, so uh, it's going to be a bit. But when we're done, we will be moving on to Dante, and uh, so I can. Get, I'll definitely have some more stuff for you then. But I wanted to announce it so that you can be preparing. Um, it's uh, it's going to be fun. I mean, I was very struck by the finalists that you guys recommended. Um, that you know that that won the election. I mean, Dante, Milton, and Spencer on the finalist list—that was incredible. Uh, so I am not—I was not shocked that Dante won. There had been a lot of people talking about this, and uh, I know that there were many people who had been pulling for this. Um, so it, it doesn't shock me at all. But I think it's—it's—it's. Uh, uh, it's, it's, I think it's going to be great. So, anyway, I. Uh, just wanted to announce that and to let you guys know that that's happening. So that is the big announcement for today. Um, uh, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. There are, uh, you know, several people lamenting some of the books that didn't win. I know, I know. I, you know, look like I am, um, I I am we're this we're 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 democracy here, right? That's what that's what it is. I don't, you know. Sometimes I I just got an email from somebody who was saying like you know talking about like wanting to see more diversity in our in the things that, that we choose and stuff, and I'm like, dude, campaign. <laughs> like I I you know, I I don't choose. Like you know, no 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 sense come and talk to me about it. Like I I have no power over this. So um um. Yeah, yeah. No, we just, uh, um, our people vote and we go with how they vote. The only intervention that I would do there is to, uh, um, uh, is to potentially veto ones that I really, really, really don't want to talk about, but that's never happened. Uh, and I'm not expecting that it will. Um, I just reserve the right to do it in case. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so, so it's, uh, you know, and, and I'm, and honestly, I am, I have no temptation. Um, uh, although I acknowledge like people's desire, you know, that like when people express the desire to see, you know, more of something or other, um, you know, whether it be, uh, more non-Western works or whether it be more science fiction or whatever, like I get it, I understand. Um, but this whole program was instituted as a way to thank you guys for your help and support. 
and to thank you guys by doing these classes on whatever books you guys want to do. That's its purpose. And I'm going to stick to that purpose. Uh, and so, you know, that's it. That's it. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, cool. Yeah, I, I actually, Stephen, I agree. I, uh, I have to admit that as a medievalist, I get a little bit grumpy about people. It's easy to say these are all like Western white guys, right? As if there's some kind of uniformity of perspective, right? Between like Dante, Boethius and a, you know, modern and like Richard Adams or something like that, right? Um there's, there is a, a huge diversity of perspective. Uh, and if the goal, if one of the things, and I certainly agree, uh, that it is a very broadening thing uh, to encounter entirely new perspectives that are totally, totally alien to you, in which case I say, welcome to the Middle Ages next time. That is going to be far more uh, different than uh, uh, a lot of uh, works modern works, uh, which would be considered diverse. Um, again, I'm not saying anything against any of these other kinds of diversity. Those are also good uh, and also broadening in different ways. Um, but I think that people who dismiss people like Chaucer and Dante and be like, oh, yeah, those are just like, you know, yet other white guys, part of the white guy club, um, don't. It's not that is not the case. Uh, they're. They are separated from us by a very wide gulf, uh, and we will be encountering things that are very strange uh, to our modern, to all of our modern perspectives. And it's something that I find really, really helpful and really, really uh, instructive. Um, anyway, all right. So, uh, but like I said, I am open to any kind of nominations and any kind of books, uh, and uh, I, you know, I I follow where you guys lead me, and that's what that's what that's what happens. All right. Um, so, let's get back to the text. Okay. So, where were we last time? We were had gotten up to. We were talking about we. we Focused last time on both rebirth and necromancy, right? Those were the two primary things that we were talking about. We did the field guide to uh, spirits in the wild. How do you know when you encounter uh, one of the hungry houseless spirits versus one of the faded spirits that have never died, right? Uh, both of them, you know, to the uninitiate it might seem in theory like they would look the same, right? Two invisible elvish spirits who can't interact with you normally and whom you can't see. Um, how can you tell the difference between those, um, between those two things? Um, and uh, the answer was really interesting, right? The answer was uh, one is evil and the other is good. Right. And that's the one way you can tell. Right. The one that's doing evil things and attempting to bring you harm and uh, trying to convince you to do evil. That's probably one of the bad guys, as we like to call them. Right. And the other is not. Um, but also remember what he was saying about how the hearts of men respond to the to the beauty of the firstborn. Right. It's just like you can't you can't mistake it, he says. Um Anyway, okay, so we're um, moving on from there to the Q&A portion uh, of the program. And 
this is one of the places where I'm trying to think, and I think I was saying this last week too, but I've been trying to think of other places in all of the history of Middle-earth that we've been reading. Um, in all of the times when we've been reading drafts and notes and outlines and, you know, all these stuff that Tolkien has been doing, like, with his work in progress, right? And trying to think of another section that was like this one. What I, and what I mean is, there's a... There's a way in which Tolkien is kind of laboring at the process here, if that's the right way to describe it, that I don't recall ever seeing him do before. There have been other times, goodness knows, when in the middle of a story or even in the middle of revising a story, a line of thinking emerges, right? Often, as we've seen before in dialogue, like the classic instance of the tramping across the marish and suddenly having a conversation about dishwashing techniques and architecture, right? Or, of course, Frodo being accompanied uh, uh, back to uh, the uh, hideout in Ithilien uh, and ha being suddenly learning all about the history of Gondor, right? The history of Gondor suddenly emerging. Um, there's several if, times that we've seen things like that um, when this stuff just kind of comes up and, and gets sort of talked through and stuff like that. Um, but this is, you know, and Jennifer, I wonder if that is, if that's actually, if that's it, that's a really, I mean, that is, that is very simple. And perhaps, perhaps that's what I needed. Jennifer, Jennifer suggests that, you know, do we see him here constructing instead of discovering instead of, you know, Tolkien happening in a sense, right? Across, like this, um, this new sort of line of thought just sort of unfolds and, and, and rolls out while he's doing something else essentially, right? Here we see him really kind of sitting down and wrestling with these problems um, to the point that we get, uh, these things actually in Q&A form, right? We see him asking questions, just like you guys, many some of the same questions that you guys have been asking as we've been discussing this, and then trying to give an answer to it. And his answers are kind of fumbling around. Uh, I'll show you what I mean. Here's the first example. So here's Mandos, right? But... <laughs> But as I suggest in my subtitle, this is not Mandos at his most pithy, right? Mandos in the published Silmarillion, uh, Mandos, it's not that he never gives a long speech, right? I mean, the, you know, the doom of Mandos that he gives to the to the Noldor is, um, you know, a substantial utterance, right? It's not that he always speaks in very brief sentences or something. But, uh, but you know, he's fairly uh, cogent, right, and uh, succinct. Uh, in his approach, listen to Mandos here. The marriage of the Eldar, he said, is by and for the living and for the duration of life. Since the elves are by nature permanent in life within Arda, so also is their unmarred marriage. But if their life is interrupted or ended, then their marriage must be likewise. Now, marriage is chiefly of the body, and it, but it is nonetheless not of the body only, but of the spirit and body together, for it begins and endures in the will of the Fea. 
Therefore, when one of the partners of a marriage dies, the marriage is not yet ended, but is in abeyance. For those that were joined are now sundered, but their union remains still a union of will. So the bodies, the death of the one body sunders the union, the bodily union, but their wills are still bound together because the two fea are still inviolate, right? How then can a marriage be ended and the union be dissolved? For unless this is done, there can be no second marriage. But the, by the law of the nature of the elves, the neri and the nisi being equal, there can be union only of one with one. Plainly, an end can be made only by the ending of the will, and of the will when the dead are not willing ever to return to, the, to life in the body, by doom when they are not permitted to return. For a union that is for the life of Arda is ended if it cannot be resumed within the life of Arda. Whew. Okay, so, um, uh, see what I mean? A little bit labored, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is Mando's kind of fumbling around with this. Notice how he's not, I don't want to say contradicting himself, right? But, uh, um, but I mean, like, listen to the sentence. Now, marriage is chiefly of the body, but it is nonetheless not of the body only, but of the spirit and the body together, for it begins and endures in the will of the fea. So he starts the sentence by saying marriage is chiefly of the body, and he ends the sentence by saying it begins and endures in the will of the fea. So it's chiefly of the body, except it's chiefly of the spirit, is where he gets around to by the end of the sentence, right? Um, now, I get, I, but please understand, I'm obviously not trying to like make fun of Tolkien here. These are his notes, and as he's like working this stuff out, and it is interesting to me, Kevin. You know, as you were just asking, like, yes, he does mostly discover things in dialogue, right? And so what's happening here, it feels like, right, is he is, it's almost like, it feels like it's almost happening the other way around. Instead of he's doing dialogue, and once the character starts talking, these new ideas that he wasn't even himself thinking about, like the answers to questions he wasn't even asking, begin to emerge, right, begin to be discovered during the course of listening to this character talk, right? Instead, it's like, it sounds almost like he's coming at it from the other way around. That is, Tolkien is just wrestling with these ideas and trying to figure out the answers to questions. And so he's attempting to do that by writing a speech for Mandos, right? Rather than just writing a narratorial exposition of this thing, right? Um, he is giving this in a speech. And yet the speech isn't, it's not flowing in the normal kind of way, right? Um, now Josiah wants to get Mandos off on a technicality uh, that uh, uh, this is, of course, this decision doesn't come through, come from Mandos. He's just transmitting it. Uh, so maybe Mandos also thought that this speech wasn't all that great. And it was like, I mean, I've got it. Seriously, I've got to read this. Um, it's um, it's possible. Anyway, I, I, so I'm not bringing this up in order to criticize again, or certainly not to mock. Um, I just want to draw attention to it because it seems to me to be of interest that I feel it feels like we're seeing Tolkien doing like engaged in a kind of project here that we've rarely seen him engaged in. Um, and that is like, trying to puzzle through 
in prose, right? Um, these kinds of these kinds of questions. Um, yeah, uh, David Attlee says this is it's an interesting way to think through problems. The debate between the Valar is basically a Socratic dialogue within Tolkien's own mind. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, for this reason, I find this whole um, this whole section. I was about to say for all that it's kind of stumbling and self-contradictory at times, but that's not what I mean. Because it's stumbling and self-contradictory at times, it feels to me very dramatic. Dramatic in the sense that it makes me feel that we are we are seeing Tolkien's mind at work as he writes, right? That uh, that the back and forth, that the oscillations, um, that in the oscillations, it feels like, now again, this might be wrong, right? But But it gives me the impression um, that we are actually sort of seeing Tolkien's mind, you know, weighing one thing and then another. I mean, like that sentence that I just reread, right? Now, marriage is chiefly of the body, but it is nonetheless not of the body only, but of the spirit and body together. Freud begins and endures in the will of the Thea. We can see him considering both sides of the case. Like, you know, he begins with the premise. Marriage is a, is a bodily thing. Right. I mean, like when you're when you're married, that your two bodies are joined together. Clearly, Mary's. But wait a second. I mean, yeah, that's true. But like, really, it's about the wills being joined together. So he starts with the one end and ends with the other end at the end of the sentence. Right. Um, So I find it. Uh, yeah, uh, Chris was just saying that he 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 adores this bit. Me too. I I find this really endearing. Uh, there's a kind of um, well, if you know what I mean. There's a kind of honesty to this, right? Honesty in the sense that we're sort of watching him. It's almost like, and again, perhaps it's a fault. That's a false impression, but it it gives me the impression of watching him think through these ideas in real time, and that is just fun. I find it really fun. Um, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Alyssa is remembering back to um, Out of the Silent Planet and saying it reminds me a little of Ransom trying to translate Weston's words for Oyarsa. Uh, it's a struggle to articulate concepts. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, Alyssa, I think you're right. I think that's part of the problem too, right? It's not just... I think that part of the problem is that he he hasn't really made up his mind or he hasn't fully thought it through. He is thinking it through fully as he's doing this. And so we see one element of the problem being considered and then another element of the problem being considered. But Alyssa, I do think that, as you suggest, part of the challenge, part of the trouble uh, that he's having uh, in these sections is trying to find words uh, to describe this, right? Trying to articulate this in a way that is going to hold together and make sense. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Chris, I do agree that, uh, you know, Chris says, I love seeing the Valar struggling with these issues and their characters are more delineated here than in other parts of the writing. Oh man, Chris, abs- that's why I am so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to warn you, I'm not going to skip a whole lot of paragraphs when we get to the debate among the Valar for exactly that reason, because I feel that actually like the paragraph from Omo and the paragraph from Aule and the paragraph from Yavana and the paragraph from Niana, right? And it keeps going like... 
I feel like we learn more about his conception at this time of their characters from those paragraphs than anywhere else. Like, where else do we ever... Again, Nana never speaks. She's never opened her mouth before. Um, so, holy cow. And Vire, I know, Josiah, seriously, right? Like, Vire gets a speech. For, I mean, holy cow. Uh, like, it's priceless. Absolutely priceless. Um, and so, and Mary, you're right. It makes them feel like real people and not just mythological characters. Yeah, it's no, there's something that's uh, deeply. So, you know, it's charming on the level of watching what appears to be Tolkien himself kind of going back and forth and thinking this through and uh, and trying to see his way through these uh, th through these concepts. Um, but but the but it's also charming the way that he's taking that and he's projecting that into the characterization of the Valar. I mean, oh, it's just it's just awesome anyway. So but let's. Let's think more about the content here rather than uh, uh, continuing to do. Uh, we're do, I'm doing sort of the, the, the meta story analysis first here, but let's get down to the, uh, to the details here. So the principles about marriage and how this follows up on what we had been discussing before. So the issue is that if marriage is for life and life extends to the, you know, with, to the length of Arda. Is separation at all possible? How then can a marriage be ended and the union be dissolved? Is that even theoretically possible? Um, for unless this is done, there can be no second marriage, right? So one thing that he's super clear about, right? Polygamy is not a thing, right? Uh, if Finway is going to remarry, he can only do that if his marriage with Muriel is actually dissolved. But as we've established before, as we, you know, this is sort of where we started with this whole process, right? Was the basic premise that till death do us part is, I was going to say insufficient, but almost meaningless, right? Because the Fea does not leave. And so if the body dies, there are the two Fea still here in Arda. Um, so notice where he ends up here. Plainly an end can be made only by the ending of the will. And the will, when the dead are not willing to return uh, to life in the body, by doom when they are not permitted to return. Okay, so... Let's start with the last sentence and work backwards. For a union that is for the life of Arda is ended if it cannot be resumed within the life of Arda. That's the key, right? And several of you are uh, suggesting that Mando sounds like a lawyer here. And this is very sort of technical reasoning, the kind of technical reasoning that is very lawyerly, right? Let's think through the exact ramifications and definitions of terms, right, in order to establish things. Um, there, in theory, there is only one way in which if the union between two fea is a union that is supposed to be insoluble as long as the life in Arda continues, then there is only one circumstance in which that union can be dissolved, and that's if it is impossible for that union to be resumed within the life of Arda. So, you know, lifetime banishment is essentially the same as death for the purposes of marriage. If you are going to be permanently 
separated from your spouse, right? If you and your spouse can never be together again for the entire rest of the history of Arda, if that's true, then your marriage has ended, even though you both are still alive. Both of your spirits are still alive, but it is not possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Oh, David, thank you. Yeah, I think we did miss a miss a bit of text here. Um, yes, yes. Um, right. Good. Yeah. Thank you, David. I will. Uh, I will clarify that in a second. Okay. So marriage can only be ended if the practicality, essentially, right, of marriage is impossible. If you are permanently distanced from each other, then you cannot continue to be married, right? That is the condition under, that is, so that is the required condition. So there are only two, or well, there's only, so therefore there's only one condition, right? If one of the, the, Spouses dies and does not return from Mandos. That's it. That's it. In that circumstance, when one remains in the halls of waiting and the other remains within, you know, out in, in the active world, right, then they, they cannot ever meet again. Um, and so, therefore, they cannot possibly have any marriage. And if that state is going to be if that state is going to be permanent, right, then it would be okay. Then remarriage would theoretically be okay because that would dissolve the union of the Fea of the original, of the Fea of the original two people. Okay. Now, there are two circumstances under which this can come about, right? And this is, David uh, brings us back to the, the passage that you were pointing to. Um, there are two ways in which this could happen. One is by the will of the person in waiting, and the other is by doom, right? Uh, the person can choose to remain in Mandos, right? They can choose to remain in the halls of waiting. Muriel does that. She doesn't want to come out. She wants to stay there for the rest of her time in Arda. So that's... Um, and so in that circumstance, she and Finway are quits permanently, right? The other is by doom. If Mandos decrees, if the judgment of the Valar is um, no parole for this one, right? This one needs to stay. Then that also means, you know, they cannot, they essentially cannot really remain uh, married uh, in any way. So, um, so yes, Chris, what this means, right? Nerdanel is a free agent. That's what this means. <laughs> right? I don't know if she wants to remarry, but you know, she could, if she wanted to, right? Nerdanel is free to play the field because Fanor is not coming out, uh, by doom, Right. Exactly, Josiah was just thinking the same thing. Exactly. Um, uh, Chris is thinking she's already born seven. She's already set the record for the number of kids, right? So maybe she's not. Are you suggesting she might not be in a hurry to remarry? Uh, possibly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, uh, 
maybe she's going to enjoy a nice uh, collection of millennia uh, single again after that marriage that she went through the first time. Um, so yes, yes, but, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. Nerdanel would be, would have the green light, uh, if she were for some reason so inclined. Um, uh, yeah. Now, George, this is, makes an interesting point. He says, it's interesting that refusing a Hroa is acceptable to Tolkien, but rejecting a spouse is not. Um, so divorce is a no-no, but rejecting life is okay. Two things I think I would say to that, George. Um, I'm not sure... The first thing that I would say is that I'm not sure that it's fair to characterize it as rejecting life. They're not rejecting life. What they're rejecting, if we can call it rejection, I think feels to me a little bit harsh to call it rejection, but what they're declining, in any case, is rebirth, right? They're not turning away from life. They have life. What they're, they're not turning away from bodies in general or rejecting their own bodies, right? Um, they are declining to be reborn. Um, and one of the reasons that I am... Uh, one of the reasons that I'm not sure that we can be very confident in... Uh, so... I'm not comfortable characterizing that as a rejection of life. And the reason, there are a couple reasons I'm not. One is that we're not being told very much about what life is like in the halls of waiting. And it is life, right? I mean, the Fea is still there, right? Um, I don't, it does not seem to me fair, given what we are told about the, you know, the teaching and correcting uh, and comforting process, like comfort is one of the things that they're getting in the halls of waiting, right? And I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that remaining in the halls... Choosing to remaining in the halls of waiting is always a bad... Should be a bad thing. Like, why should it be a bad thing? Why should that be characterized as a rejection of life? It might be a good thing, right? Perhaps having undergone the comfort that is available in the halls of waiting, what if one of those spirits one of those elvish spirits who goes through that comforting and receives that comfort chooses to spend the rest of their time in Arda helping to administer comfort to others in the halls of waiting. That could happen, right? That would not be a rejection of life, but a finding of a new calling, right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, and here... If you're asking me, like, what could I possibly base that on? Well, nothing in the text that we've read. But I'm, what I'm basing it on is Leaf by Niggle, honestly. Um, Niggle and Parish, uh, in their establishment of Niggle's Parish, part of their time in purgatory is establishing a thing which assists other people in purgatory. I mean, that's clear from the story. So that dynamic is a thing that, we again, we don't see it here, and so I'm projecting from Leaf by Niggle onto here, but it's the other, it's the other major purgatory. Uh, it's you know the place in Tolkien's writing where we see most clearly his thoughts about purgatory is in Leaf by Niggle. Um, this stuff about the Halls of Waiting that we've been reading for the last couple of weeks is like the second most intensive discussion of purgatory uh, um, that that we've seen. Um, but um, 
Exactly, Kevin. You're be- being a, being an, an agent of gentle treatment. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, let's see. And uh, so David says, we're, t- we're told that elves who suffer a death of their own will demonstrate a flaw of character. Yes, that's true. And that's where, see, that's exactly, David, it's the other reason why I'm uncomfortable characterizing the choice to remain in waiting as a rejection of life. Um, the choice to abandon your body, if you didn't have to abandon your body, right? I mean, you know, it's not like your body was chopped up into pieces and stuff and just shut down, right? Um, but for the elves who, through despair or grief, leave their bodies, um, that is described as a fault. That is described as a weakness. That's a and and they often aren't given a second go, right? That that you know we, he said that rebirth is unusual. Um, elves who do that rarely get a rebirth opportunity, um, and they often end up staying uh, by doom in the halls of waiting. Um, so yes, that is closer anyway to a rejection of life. Now, again, it's not that he speaks of that entirely without pity, right? Um, of that kind of situation. Um, but, uh, um, but anyway, uh, even that I don't think means that they're like suffering eternal punishment or something like that. Again, it's not it's not about that. Right. Um, But it is. A. A fitting, uh, an appropriate, um, a very understandable, at the very least, um, uh, consequence of their choice. Right. They they opted out of life with a body. And so they spend the rest of their time in life without a body. That is a fulfillment of their choice to some extent, um, and, but not necessarily a continuous rejection of life. Anyway, um, so, so yeah, so I think that that's, I don't see him being harshly judgmental here against the elves who are choosing to remain. What he's saying is that it is a logical, it is a logical consequence of that choice. If, you are going to remain in Mandos for the rest of the time of Arda and the souls, the fair who remain in the halls of Mandos cannot interact with the living, then ergo, uh, it, you, their marriage is done, right? You cannot remain married to somebody uh, with whom you can never interact, with whom you are permanently separated in this way. Um yeah, yeah. Um, more explanation. We say that the ending of will must proceed from the dead. For the, uh, the ending of will, that is, if the person who chooses to end the marriage. So a divorce has to be initiated by the dead spouse, right? Uh, so first you die, then you deliver divorce papers. We say that the ending of will must proceed from the dead, for the living may not for their own purposes compel the dead to remain thus, 
nor deny to them rebirth if they desire it. And it must be clearly understood that this will of the dead not to return, when it has been solemnly declared and is ratified by Mandos, shall then become a doom. The dead will not be permitted ever to return to the life of the body. So let's start with that there. Um, divorce proceedings must initiate from the dead person because they can't, if they emerge, if, that, if their fea emerges from Mandos and res, returns to life, they are still married, like by the nature of things, they are still married to their first spouse, right? So a severance of marriage, a termination of marriage can only be forever. It has to be forever. Uh, and so therefore, it can only be initiated by the dead one. Because if it were initiated by the... And remember, this is the... Um, this is one of the things that I was laughing about. Like, I, one of the reasons I was chuckling uh, in uh, such a puerile fashion uh, several weeks ago when we were looking at his first drafts of the Finway stuff. Uh, because it... it seemed kind of awful, right? Before he had thought through all this stuff, when Finway Finway did not come off looking very well at all, right, in that first version. Um, and this was one of the reasons why, right? He was like, oh, well, so, you know, my wife died and I really want to have more kids and, like, I'm grieving and I guess I have to grieve forever now and that doesn't seem right. And um, uh so can't I move on? And, uh, and, you know, and they're all like, well, but you can only sever your, you know, you can only end your marriage, uh, if she never returns out of Mandos. And he's like, yep, I'm fine with that. I got a new wife lined up, right? Let's, uh, let's do, I mean, that would be awful. Right. Uh, and it, you know, there were parts of how it was, um, uh, it was depicted in that first time that, um, <laughs> Finway did not come across looking very good, right? Um, so we have clarity on that issue now, right? Um, you cannot serve your dead spouse divorce papers. Your dead spouse has to serve you divorce papers. Now, by what mechanism? Through the Valar, right? I mean, Mandos is the is the go-between here. Um, Mandos is the go-between. Um yeah, yeah. Um, so, but notice the choice by will by the dead spouse becomes doom, right? You make the choice. You get a time to think about it, right? So that if you want to, like, you can, you can, you can have some time to make sure that that's what you really, really want, right? But once that waiting time has passed and Mandos declares it, no backsies after that, right? Um, Muriel is permanently in Mandos. When she decides and she gets the 10 valiant years to think about it and make sure that this is the decision that she wants, it is permanent at that point. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. <laughs> Mich Michelle says, so a vindictive spouse that dies could say, no, I'm not coming back, but I'm not giving you a divorce either. <laughs> so we're sort of imagining like, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
the necromantic divorce court of the dead in Valinor, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so let's imagine how uh, awkward divorces could happen. So... I'm not sure, Michelle. So here's what I'm not sure about. It would have... The only way that that could happen would be... Um, the only way that that could happen would be if the dead spouse said, I'm not sure if I'm going to come back. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Right? In which case, the marriage isn't terminated because if they choose to come back, they cannot be prevented. Their choice to, their choice to be reborn cannot be thwarted by the choice of somebody else. Right? Like the, the living spouse cannot veto the choice of the dead spouse to be reborn if they choose to be reborn. Right? But if the dead spouse, Michelle, at first is like, well, I'm going to keep my options open. Maybe I stay. Maybe I'll be reborn. You know, can't tell. I'm not going to rush into this. Right. Then the, the living spouse could not remarry um, for as long as that happened. Um, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, Stephen. Uh, is imagining a whole a whole new species of uh, uh, of Valinorian TV shows, uh, which would be necromantic comedy. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, in theory, that's. I mean, the only way around that, Michelle, would be if some kind of. Um, an ultimatum is delivered, like by Mandos, because again, it couldn't be by the living spouse necessarily. Um, but this is that was exactly the position, Michelle, that Finway put Muriel in the first time round, right? Back in that earlier version, before he launched into the laws and customs of the Eldar, um, how it worked was Finway initiated the, the the divorce, right? He was like, Can't I please remarry? And um, they were like, you can only do it if Muriel says it's okay, right? And so they checked with Muriel and they're like, are you okay with terminating your marriage with Finway? And she's like, I'm good, right? It's fine. Don't want to see him again anyway, right? And again, this is why I was making all these jokes and laughing. But, um, but she was given a deadline, right? She had to choose and her choice was going to be permanent, right? So Michelle, but that's what he seems to be backing off on that here, right? Um, because Muriel was put on the spot like she, she had just died and she was given 10 years to make a permanent decision for the whole rest of her time in Arda, right? Um, and I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I, yeah. Now, Zach says, if the ending of the marriage has to come from the dead, what about if the dead is not allowed to return like Feanor? Does he have to say it's okay for Nerdanel to remarry? No. No. Zach, because if, if, remember, permanent residence in Mandos ends the marriage. So, if your, if your residence in Mandos is permanent by doom, the end. Right? Mandos decreed that Nerdanel and Feanor's marriage is over. Right now, obviously, he's not going to mandate Nordenel getting remarried. That's up to her. But Feanor does not have the power to prevent Nordenel from remarrying if he didn't want to let her. 
right? Because she and he are separated by a gulf which is not going to be crossed for the entire rest of the life of Arda. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, George is asking, is Mandos part of Arda? Yeah, no, totally. Because elves, elf, the Fear of the Elves don't leave Arda. And so if they're in Mandos, yeah. But it is a cordoned off subsection of Arda, uh, which has no interaction with the rest of Arda. So um, you don't get visiting rights into uh, either way. Right. Um, you know, you don't get field trips if you're in Mandos and you don't get visiting rights if you're not in Mandos. Um, uh, so it is. But there's no communication there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Kit, I imagine that Mandos would have to tell Nerdanel. Um, poor Nerdanel. I, like, I feel like we're, you know, here we are talking about Nerdanel behind her back and she hasn't done anything to deserve it. But yeah, I think that Mandos would have to decree it. Or maybe he would. I mean, like, what, what do they send her a letter? Like, dear Nerdanel. Um, your husband is never, com- uh, we, uh, we are happy to reassure you that your husband is never emerging from Mandos by doom. Uh, so, you know, it's up to you, right? Play the field if you like, but no pressure. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I would have to think that she would get some kind of a letter, uh, from Mandos, uh, here. Um, yeah, I would have to think so. So, yeah, Michael was just asking a similar question. How does an elf outside Valinor find uh, find out they're free? Oh, outside, like one still in Middle-earth, right? I no idea. Uh, dream, uh, uh, you know, long-distance post, I do not know. Um, I do not know. Yep, <laughs> no clue, no clue. Uh, yeah. Moth messenger, possibly, possibly. Um, it is possible. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, let's keep going because we have a we have a we have a, a further question. The Eldar then asked, "How shall the will or doom be known?" Well, here we go. See, look, we did it again. It was answered only by recourse to Manway and by the pronouncement of Namo. In this matter, it shall not be lawful for any of the Eldar to judge his own case. For who among the living can discern the thoughts of the dead or presume the dooms of Mandos? So, yes, you can only remarry if you get explicit, only with the written, with the express, express written consent of Manwe or Namo or, you know, Mandos, right? That's it. That's it. And so that kind of does mean that the folks that are still in Middle-earth don't really have access to this. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Also, it does, I mean, we've been joking about them sending out letters. It suggests that they don't get letters. You have to apply in person, right? If you go, if you appeal the question, Hey, um, so just like out of curiosity, is my wife coming back? Uh, cause you know, if so, fine, it's good. It's all good. But if not, uh, you know, I got other options that I could kind of pull the trigger on here. So I'm just wondering, right. Um, you've got to ask, right. And, um, 
therefore, I don't know that it's possible for an elf in Middle Earth to ask. Um, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. Now we gotta we gotta sort of unpack this further, right? It was asked. What is meant by the saying that marriage is chiefly of the body and yet is both of spirit and body? Right? Let's come back to that apparent contradiction. It was answered. Marriage is chiefly of the body, for it is achieved by bodily union, and its first operation is the begetting of the bodies of children, even though it endures beyond this and has other operations. And the union of bodies in marriage is unique, and no other union resembles it. Whereas the union of Thayar in marriage differs from other unions of love and friendship not so much in kind as in its closeness and permanence, which are derived partly from the bodies in their union and in their dwelling together. Nonetheless, marriage concerns also the Fear, for the Fear of the elves are of their nature male and female, not and not their Hondor only. And the beginning of marriage is in the affinity of the Fear, and in the love arising therefrom. And this love includes in it from its first awakening, the desire for marriage, and is therefore like to, but not in all ways the same as other motions of love and friendship, even those between elves of male and female nature who do not have this inclination, that is, to marriage. It is therefore true to say that, though achieved by and in the body, marriage proceeds from the fea and resides ultimately in its will for which reason it cannot be ended and has been declared while that will, as has been declared, while that will remains. Okay, okay. Um, did you follow that? Right? Marriage is chiefly of the body because it is chiefly a bodily union, right? Um, so there, you know, go not to Mandos for counsel because he will say both Roa and Fea, right, is kind of what's going on here. Um, the joining of two people in marriage is primarily a matter of will. It is from the beginning derived from their Fear, from the affinity of their Fear. Remember how we were told that from like that elves who get married often are joined together in childhood, right? Their fear reach out to each other from childhood on, um, so that it is, um, it naturally grows. At, there seems to be almost this sort of inborn affinity between uh, two people that leads them to marriage, right? Um, not always, but that's. Uh, I mean, I don't think he said that 100% of marriages are always like that, you know, because they don't always meet in, in, as, as children. Um, but, uh, but anyway, that, that often happens. So there is this affinity uh, for another person, which leads to marriage, and that the marriage is grounded in the will. Um, it proceeds from the fea and resides ultimately in its will. So this is why marriage cannot be ended while the will remains. Um, while their wills are set on each other and it is possible for them to reunite, even if that reunion is in the very far distant future, 
the marriage cannot possibly be dissolved. However, it's the union of body that separates marriage from other relationships. There are other people with whom your fea can be bound, right? Because there are many other kinds of love. There are your family members with whom your fea, your fea is closely bound, right? There are your close friends to whom your fea is closely bound, right? And he says that the relationship between the fear of friends or the fear of brothers and sisters, say, right? The relationship between fear of those various different kinds of combinations are more similar than the bodily relationships of husband and wife and brother and sister. Most brothers and sisters, <clears throat> Turin excluded. Um, but you see what I mean. Uh, so, yeah. So so in that so it's chiefly of the body because the bodily union is the thing that is unique about marriage. That is the thing that chiefly differentiates that differentiates more than anything else um uh the marriage relationship, right? Um but it does not just depend on the bodily union. Um it's not truly a if it were truly a bodily thing, then it would end when one of the bodies was dismantled, right? Um, but it does not, because it's rooted in the will. So we can see why Mandos was kind of laboring with this before, because he really is saying, it, it really is both ways, right? Um, yeah, so Nancy says, can you get that kind of relationship between elves and men? Well, yeah. That's going to be an interesting question. Now, notice we've not considered that yet. That's something that we will have to consider in the future. Uh, I keep pushing off the question of, uh, you know, applying these principles to what about the Baron Luthien situation? What about the Melian situation? Right. I am. Um, I've been pushing. I keep pushing that back and I'm going to carry on pushing that back because that's not that's not the question that he's asking yet. But you can see he's going to get there. Right. Um, the way that Tolkien is thinking systematically about these questions, the day will come when we will get there, and I want to wait for it uh, rather than trying to anticipate it. Um, oh, and you were thinking about the non-marriage stuff, Nancy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, sure. Um, I think that there... I mean, so do do men, for instance, also have a fea and a roa? Yeah, absolutely. Um, their fair and their hoar aren't related to each other in the same way. Remember, that's the main difference. The main difference between elves and men is the way in which their fair and their hoar is related to each other, right? Um, uh, and the ultimate destiny of their fair, the fact that their fair is trapped in uh, Arda, right, until Arda ends, whereas human fair go away to somewhere else after death. Um, um, but yeah, so if two friends, um, if you have a close friend between an elf and say a dwarf or a man, right, then yes, uh, their fair would be related, connected to each other, but not by this similarly kind of inviolable, permanent uh, thing because, or Nancy, if we think about it, um, all right, hang on. I'm going to break the rule that I just say. And I'm going to, I'm going to speculate about one thing. Think forward to Baron and Luthien for a second. 
by the rule that Mandos is currently passing down. If it is not possible for the two Fear to be in the same place anymore, then the marriage is over, which is what Luthien was confronting when Baron died, right? When Baron died, it was, it's not possible no matter what she does or chooses or what he does or chooses, right? So having established this stuff, we can now see in that now in retrospect or, you know, in retcon perspective, um, projecting these ideas backward to the Baron and Luthien story, Luthien now has an interesting cause for complaint, right? That the kind of continuation of their marriage, which is normal, for elves, they are being deprived of, right? Um, and uh, Baron does not have the ability, like the dead here, does not have the ability to choose, does not have the freedom to choose in the same kind of way. <laughs> Brian says, so Dairon would have had another chance. That's right. That's right. Uh, never say never, Dairon. Um, anyway. But I'm going to now resume not thinking about Baron and Luthien. Okay. Let's keep going. Here is the last passage in the Laws and Customs Among the Eldar. Two. It was asked, If the dead return to the living, are the sundered spouses still wedded? And how may that be if marriage is chiefly of the body, whereas the body of one part of the union is destroyed? Must the sundered be again married if they wish, or whether they wish it or no? So if they come back, they're still married, but new body. Do we have to have another ceremony? You have to reconsummate the marriage? It was answered. It has been said that marriage resides ultimately in the will of the Fear. So it's like, don't forget, I already explained this. Also, the identity of the person resides wholly in the Fear. And the reborn is the same person as the one who died. So, new Hroa doesn't matter. It is the purpose of the grace of rebirth that the unnatural breach in the continuity of life should be redressed, and none of the dead should be per will be permitted to be reborn until and unless they desire to take up their former life and continue it. Indeed, they cannot escape it, for the reborn soon recover full memory of all their past. So, so you could ask, what if you want to be reborn and just have a fresh start, right? Like, I just want to, I want a clean slate when I'm born again, right? So, um, I don't, is it, would it be possible then? Could I choose to be reborn and, and not have the same wife? Is that possible? Right? That's the question, right? And the answer is no, not possible. Not possible because in choosing rebirth, you are choosing to resume your life. You, you don't get a new life. You are still you. Your fea is uninterrupted. And remember, the history and the development of your fea is continuous. Your life through your death time in waiting and then your new life will be, with the one interruption of child of your second childhood, will be a continuous unbroken memory for you, just as it is for every other elf. Um, so, um, so no, 
No, you would not. Re- the only condition under which you would return is to take up your life again. Um, and that means your marriage, which is a part of your life. So um, it's a part of the package of choosing rebirth. Um Well, let me finish. If then marriage is not ended while the dead are in the halls of waiting in hope or promise to return, but is only in abeyance, how then shall it be ended when the fea is again in the land of the living? So, yeah, I mean, like if, yeah, you, you, so if the marriage cannot end, but is only in abeyance while you're in Mandos, obviously you can't, you cannot choose divorce when you're alive. That's not possible. But herein there is indeed a difficulty that reveals to us that death is a thing unnatural. It may be amended, but it cannot, while Arda lasts, be wholly undone or made as if it had not been. What shall come to pass as the Eldar grow older cannot be wholly foreseen. But perceiving their nature, as we now do, we hold that the love of the... The end. Um, Now, I said in my... uh, I suggested in my... uh, my subtitle here that I, I'm not sure if this is a cliffhanger ending or if this is hitting a wall, right? It's either running off a cliff or it's hitting a wall and I'm not sure which one it is. Um, but, um, I, yeah, either he just like ran, ran out of time and had to stop and didn't get to come back to this exactly. Or he just like, Again, hit a wall, right? Um, I don't know. I'm a little bit inclined towards the wall myself. Um, uh, But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Nancy says, okay, what if you're dead and then your spouse dies and then you choose to come back to life? Okay. In that case, Nancy... You would still be married, and you could only be freed from your marriage if your wife, if your spouse, the one who died the second, who died second, chooses to stay, right? So you, having been reborn, would then have to appeal to Manway and Mandos and be like, "Is she staying dead or what?" Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, I think I. I think we can say that fairly clearly based on Mandos's judicial opinion here. And I agree, Brian, this sounds a lot like a judicial opinion, this whole, this whole thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is, right? I mean, it's almost exactly what it is, is a judicial opinion. Um, to me, the sentence that makes me think that he's hitting a wall here is what shall come to pass as the Eldar grow older cannot be wholly foreseen, right? That's him saying, okay, this is complicated enough at this moment in time, like the Finway moment in time, right? But given what he's already said about the fading of the Hroa and, you know, what is even the experience of the Eldar going to be like post-fading, Right. Is, I mean, is any of this stuff going to be relevant? Can it be, um, can it be, uh, 
um, determined really at all, right? I mean, it's it, it just sounds like he opens up this can of worms and then, and then is like, no, I just got to push back from this, right? I yeah, no, you know what? I don't know, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on because we do get more, right? He does come back to this when he goes to continue um, the Quinta, right? And to disc- and to um, to describe what happens there with the whole remarriage of Finway issue. So, continuing. It has been said that marriage resides ultimately in the will of the Fea, so we're still trying to clarify this business. Also, the identity of person resides in the Fea, and the dead that return, struck out, will, in time recover full memory of the past. What is more, though the body is more than raiment and change of body, will not be of no effect change to the change of body will certainly have effect upon the reborn. The Fea is the master and the reborn will come to resemble the former self so closely that all who knew them before death will recognize them soonest and most readily the former spouse. So this is the answer to the question that you guys were somewhat. One of you was asking this last week, the reborn baby. Does it take after the new parents? Or does it take after the old parents, right? And the answer seems to be both, both. The, ba- the, the, the new baby might take after the, uh, the new parents because the Hroa comes from the body, the, bo- the body of the baby comes from the bodies of the parents. But as the baby grows, remember, close union between the Fea and the Hroa, right? So as this new Hroa grows, the f- it adapts to the Fea, right? And and the Fea, which um yeah, the 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 Fea shapes it, the Hroa, right? So um it would start off as an infant, it would look like its mom and dad, and then as the elf grew, uh it would look more and more like its old self, so that it can be recognized. If you run into a reborn elf on the street and you knew him in, you know, her previous li- you knew her in a previous life, you would recognize her, right? And the one who will recognize this the person most swiftly is the former spouse. Nonetheless, since marriage is also of the body and one body has perished, they must be married again if they will. For they will have returned, as it were, to that state in their former life when by the motions of the fair they desired to be married. There will be no question of desiring this or not desiring it. For by the steadfastness of the fair of the Eldar, uncorrupted, they will desire it. And none of the dead will be permitted by Mandos to to be reborn until and unless they desire to take up life again in continuity with their past." For it is the purpose of the time in waiting in Mandos that the unnatural breach in the continuity of life of the life of the Eldar should be healed, though it cannot be undone or made of no effect in Arda. It follows, therefore, also that the dead will be reborn in such place and time that the meeting and recognition of the sundered shall surely come to pass, and there shall be no hindrance. 
to their marriage. So we haven't had an explicit answer about who makes the call exactly. Like, so, you know, somewhere in middle earth, it's conception day, right? Uh, Two elves, a elvish husband and wife who love each other very much, have decided to have a baby. And it is conception day for the new baby. So it's time for the Fea lottery. Do they get a new Fea, right? Are we getting a freshly minted baby? A brand new elf fresh out of the packaging? Or are we getting a reborn soul, right? Um... They don't know. The parents don't know the answer to this question, right? Um, we've not been told exactly who says this, right? Who determines this? Mandos gets the say-so, right? He gives the green light to their being reborn, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the one to um, to make this call, that he's the one who says, oh, yeah, can we, uh, you know, uh, Eru, can we get a new soul over here, right? Can we um, Can we plug that in? I think that's above Manos's pay grade, so um, I don't, um, I don't think so. Um, but anyway, okay, so we didn't get an answer to that question. But whoever is making that decision is orchestrating things with marriage. I, I, I don't know if it's safe to say primarily in mind, right? But centrally, certainly in mind. Um, whoever is organizing these things makes sure that the reborn soul pops up near the place and time that the spouse is around. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Chris wants to know about... Uh, what is the what is elvish rebirth due to inheritance laws? Oh, good grief! I don't even want to think about that at all. Talk about your new problem for like a, you know a Victorian novel, right? Um, oh no! But then a new heir to the manor was born in the next county, right? Because it turns out that he was the you know. Um, can you bequeath something to your own father who died many years ago, right? When he's reborn, like in the, in the event that he should be reborn. I don't even want to think about it. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Chris. And that's in that case, he would in fact be to the manor reborn. Wouldn't he? Yes. Yes, he would. <laughs> yes, he would. Um, Oh, okay. Um, uh, let me not think about this. Um, now, I agree, John, that I can't imagine that inheritance laws are very highly developed among the Eldar. Uh, any more than I would think that, like, writing your will would be very common <laughs> among elves. Because, you know, you write your will when you think you're likely to die. Like, it's, it's kind of the premise, right, of writing a will. Uh, is that you never know what happens and you might die. Now, elves can still say that, especially back in these older times. Um, they don't know exactly what's going to happen. But um, um, but yeah, I agree, John. Estate planning is probably not a really prominent career path among the Eldar. That seems to me pretty logical. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, <laughs> Tomas is saying, wait, but wouldn't earthly possessions be attributes of the Hroa only? See, man, like, you got, like, whole generations of elvish solicitors being, uh, uh, being supported by these questions, I would have to think. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kid, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. Thinking of, um, you know, elvish parents going through all this trouble coming up with just the right name for their new child, only to find it's a moot point when the child is born, right? Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, I got a name, turns out. Um, but of course, that wouldn't be discovered instantly. So it would be part of the renaming process. So presumably the father name that's declared at birth would still be applicable to the new person. It would be just, just like you collect other names at other points in your life, at other phases of your life. Your new father name after rebirth would be one of those new names that you would pick up. So it's fine. The way that we get around that kid is, that, is the collection of names, right? Since everybody has so many names in the first place, it's all good. Um, so yeah, no, n no one gets, uh, slighted on the naming process there. Okay. Um, but we've got to continue clarifying these things. It was asked, why must the dead remain in Mandos forever if the Thea consents to the ending of the marriage? And what is this doom of which Mandos speaks? Okay, so hang on a second now. You've said that marriage rests in the will of the Thea. So why can't they just will it away? Why can't they just be like, you know what? No, I'm done. It's fine. We're quits. While you're still alive. Why should divorce not be possible if it's a matter of the will? Notice that, that we are moving on. If I can go backwards for just a second. Notice he is in all of this very detailed discussion of the marriage and remarriage question, I want to draw your attention to the bigger issue that has crept in here. Right? Let me reread the passage where it came up. Uh, mm -hmm. Where did it go? There will be no question of desiring this or not desiring it. For by the steadfastness of the Thayar of the Eldar, uncorrupted, they will desire it. Uncorrupted. There will be no question of desiring this or desire or not desiring it. Right? Um, a lot of the questions, I mean, some of the questions that you guys have been asking have been premised upon corruption. Right. Like, Michelle, I'm thinking especially of your vindictive spouse question. Right. Um, a resentful spouse who dies and goes to to um, Mandos and is like, I'm not going to say whether I'm going to stay or not. I'm going to keep my options open so that you can't remarry, you jerk. Right. Uh, it's easy for us to imagine a situation like that. Right. But that that situation is premised upon corruption. I mean, that's a broken situation. Everybody would agree that that kind of attitude reflects brokenness. And I'm not just saying on the part of the one spouse, on the part of both of them, right? I mean, that's clearly just a very corrupted and broken situation, right? Um, that's one of the things then that he's kind of coming up against. 
is this question of how fallen are the elves, right? We know corruption. We know they can turn to evil. We know that their wills are free in that way. And he was just talking about the spirits of elves turning, becoming evil spirits, possessing mortals and and like that like that and we were speculating that the Barrow Whites are very likely elves, dead elves who have refused the call of Mandos. That's what Tolkien suggested in his discussion about how necromancy works. So there's so on that level, on like the purely moral question, can elves go really, really bad? Yeah, of course they can. That we already knew. But the question is, what is their natural inclination? How corrupt are is there are their wills from the beginning? Do elves operate under a condition like original sin? To what extent is the are, are the circumstances of elvish death and rebirth influenced by the marring of Arda as a whole, right? So the, the bigger question, the bigger issue that I'm suggesting that he is now approaching here is the question of how marred is Arda exactly, categorically, right? And how does that affect the elves? And to what extent does that affect the elves? And in particular, death. Okay. Um... It's interesting. Several of you are um, thinking about Aeol and Arathel, thinking about corrupted and messed up marriages. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a good one. A good example of not a good marriage, but a good example of a pretty messed up marriage. Um, And if I had one candidate, Michelle, within Tolkien's corpus as an embittered dead spouse who's most likely to carry on in the way that you are suggesting, it would be Aeol, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, um, not you know, refusing to release Arthel under any circumstances. But I got to tell you, I think it's pretty likely that he would be kept there by doom, and so Mandos would set her free. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Michael is thinking that Aeol might well refuse the summons, quite possibly. Uh-oh. Wait a second, we haven't asked that question. What happens if the elf refuses the summons? The dead spouse. What if you're married and your dead spouse refuses the summons and doesn't go to Mandos in the first place? Uh, I don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Because would they... Would Doom be passed against them? Maybe Doom would be passed against them. Like, if you become one of the hungry houseless, like... You're pretty much never going to be reborn. That's for darn sure. Right? Um, And so, therefore, you're permanently separated by your own choice. It's essentially tantamount to choosing not to return, because it's certainly impossible to return. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Karita, I agree. 
uh, finding the unquiet wraith of Aeol really does sound like a Lotro quest, doesn't it? Oh, man. It could be a whole quest line there. Uh, I mean, they couldn't do it because Aeol's in the Silmarillion, but still, in principle. Yeah. Um, but see, David, that's why I was pausing about it, because in theory, the summons is perpetual, so they could go back, right? Um, but what I'm thinking, the, the, what, what I was thinking there, though, David, is that I would think that even if they, like, so if you refuse the summons and you remain as like a disgruntled, houseless Fea in Middle-earth for a prolonged period of time, um, uh, and, and then eventually you give in and say yes to the summons, I'm thinking there is a high correlation between elves who do that and elves who by doom are not permitted to leave. I don't think they're getting a body again anytime soon or perhaps ever if that happens. It's not to say that they won't get healing. They'll get healing, right? They will receive comfort and counsel and everything. They're recoverable still at that point. But I don't see them ever get, being prime candidates for rebirth. And so therefore, Mandos would be like, nope, okay, thank you for coming. You're never leaving. Your, you know, your husband is free. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, good. Okay. Um, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, they can still repent and go to Mandos and be healed, but yeah, but I don't think they'd be reborn. Um, and so that, 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 that frees up the spouse, um, which means that in theory, in theory, you could be haunted by your own spouse while you're getting remarried. <laughs> oh man. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Let me go on. I had advanced to the next slide, so let's keep doing that. Okay. Um, okay. No, I hadn't read this slide yet. Okay. Um, why must the dead remain in Mandos forever if the Thea consents to the ending of marriage? And what is this doom of which Mando speaks? It was answered. The reasons are to be found in what has been said already. Marriage is for life and cannot therefore be ended, save by the interruption of death without return. While there is hope or purpose of return, it is not ended, and the living cannot therefore remarry again. If the living is permitted to marry again, then by doom Mandos will not permit the dead to return. For, as has been declared... One reborn is the same person as before death and returns to take up and continue his or her former life. But if the former spouse were remarried, this would not be possible, and great grief and doubt would afflict all three parties. Um, not possible. Now, by the way, those... Uh, so, people have been saying that this sounds like a, a judicial opinion. Uh, it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like legal language. I have to say, the longer it goes on, the less it sounds to me like a modern Supreme Court judge or, you know, a modern um, solicitor. And the more it sounds to me like not a Socratic dialogue, but a medieval dialogue like Boethius, right? For those of you who remember who did the Boethius uh, discussion with me uh, and remember it. Um, the tone of this 
the reasons are to be found in what has been said already. Doesn't that sound like lady philosophy, right? Um, you've got like the comparatively naive interlocutor and you've got the authority interlocutor, often the divine interlocutor like lady philosophy, right? Um, and she's explaining how things work, right? Um, and this kind of language, this kind of very, um, again, it's it's less legalese and more scholastic, essentially. A scholastic in the sense of, of uh, you know, like, uh, like Aquinas, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. David was saying it reminds me of the Aquinas class I took on the Summa Theologica. Exactly, exactly. Um, and this is precisely the way. Now, Aquinas, when he wrote the Summa, was not... Um, uh, was not he didn't do it in dialogue form. Like he didn't have multiple characters, right? That he was uh, that he was doing, but he um, uh, but he does a lot of questions and answers like this, right? He he poses questions, gives answers to it, uh, uh, re- responds to potential objections to those questions. I mean, yeah. So that this kind of careful, systematic thinking through and responding to objections is a very um, uh, a very traditional uh, medieval Catholic thing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's keep going. Here's Mandos's job description. To speak of the dooms of Mandos, these are of three kinds. He utters the decisions of Manway, or of the Valar in conclave, which become binding upon all, even the Valar, when they are so declared. For which reason a time passes between the decision and the doom. In similar manner, he utters the decisions and purposes of others. So that's the third time. The decisions and purposes of others who are under his jurisdiction, who are the dead, in grave matters that affect justice and the right order of Arda. And when so spoken, his decisions become laws also though pertaining only to particular persons or cases, and Mandos will not permit them to be revoked or broken, for which reason, again, a time must pass between decision and doom. And lastly, there are the dooms of Mandos that proceed from Mandos himself, as judge in matters that belong to his office as ordained from the beginning. He is the judge of right and of wrong, and of innocence or guilt, and all the degrees and mingling of these in the mischances and misdeeds that come to pass in Arda. All those who come to Mandos are judged with regard to innocence or guilt in the matter of their death and in all other deeds and purposes of their lives in the body. And Mandos appoints to each the manner and length of their time of waiting according to this judgment. But his dooms in such matters are not uttered in haste, and even the most guilty are being tested whether they may be healed or corrected before any final doom is given, such as never to return again among the living. Therefore, it was said, who among the living can presume the dooms of Mandos? Okay, Mandos does three things. There are three kinds of dooms. So first of all, let's define a doom in this context, right? When Mandos decrees a doom, he is enacting a law. When Mandos declares something, it is official and unbreakable. It becomes a law which is binding to everybody. Nobody, not even the other Valar, 
can appeal one of Mandos's dooms. It is set in stone when Mandos utters it, and so therefore he's not hasty to do that, right? And so there, so but there are three circumstances under which he declares his dooms. First, when he declares the dooms of the Valar themselves, if Mandos, or sorry, if Manwe makes a decision, makes a decree, right, as king, then Mandos, it's not official until Mandos enacts it, until Mandos decrees the doom. And a time passes in between, so Mandos can have backseas for a while, right? If Manwe changes, or Man- Manwe can, I keep screwing up the names, I apologize. If Manwe, deci- if Manwe changes his mind, he's like, I decree this, and he's like, oh, wait, actually, I just thought of a really bad situation in which this could have some unintended consequences. So, yeah, no, I'm... Um, I'm not going to do that. But if Mandos hasn't decreed it, it's okay. Right? Um, so, something that Manway decides or something that the Valar decides together in Conclave. Doom of type 1 is the decisions of the Valar. Doom of type 2 are the personal decisions of the dead. And this is especially for those, the you know, this the case in point, right, are for those who decide that they're done with their marriage and that they're never leaving Mandos, right? If they decide, if the dead decide that they don't want to be reborn, they can decide that. And he will enact that as a doom. He will utter that as a doom after they've had some time to think about it. And once he has, it's over. It is official and it is binding and they cannot change their minds. And the third kind of doom is his own decisions. In the other two, he is merely notarizing what others have decided, right? In the third case, he is judging himself because he also does serve as a judge to judge innocent and guilt, innocence or guilt, and to judge all the deeds and purposes of the lives of their body. He's the one who decides. This is why he can decide by doom. Why it can be taken out of your hands, whether or not you're going to come out of Mandos or not. Because he might say, yeah, no, Fanor, I'm sorry, no, you're not leaving, right? That is my doom. Um, so this is really interesting. I, this is a fascinating paragraph, right? Uh, uh, and um, it brings to mind other passages. Like that line that I love to quote from the Council of Elrond, that is the doom that we must deem. When you're deeming a doom, you're that serious, right? Um, when El- it suggests that when Elrond says, what shall we do with it? That is the doom that we must deem, right? When he's saying we have to make a decision about what we're going to do with the Ring of Power, he is emphasizing by saying that, by saying, by calling it a doom that they must deem. He is saying, we're not going to get backsies on this. Once we decide, we are dedicated to that course of action. And we cannot, we're not going to be able to take it. But he is emphasizing the permanence of this decision. No pressure there, right? Um, but that's a really... That's a really big deal. 
Okay. Upon this, the Eldar comment, innocence or guilt in the matter of death is spoken of because to be in any way culpable in incurring this evil, this evil meaning death, to be in any way culpable in incurring this evil, whether by forcing others to slay one in their defense against unjust violence, or by foolhardiness, or the making good of rash vaunts, or by slaying oneself, or willfully withdrawing the fea from the body, is held a fault. Or at least the withdrawal from life is held a good reason, unless the will of the fea be changed for the fea to remain among the dead and not to return. As for guilt and other matters, Little is known of the dealings of Mandos with the dead. So hang on a second. Let's start start with the first half. First, wrongful death. Right? We get several examples here of deaths that are deemed culpable. Right? Um, ways in which your Fea and Roa can become separated, which are kind of your own fault. Right? If you, A are slain because you made somebody slay you because you attacked them, right? If you attacked somebody else and they fought you off and killed you in self-defense, that's your fault, right? That's not their fault. That's your fault, right? You have, in a sense, chosen death. You brought your death about yourself, right? You're culpable for that. So that's option number one. Option number two, by foolhardiness. If you do something really stupid, right, if you do something dumb and bring about your own death as a consequence of your own foolhardiness, that's on you, man. Right? That is on you. You are culpable for your death. For that, nobody forced you to do that boneheaded thing. Right? Or the making good of rash vaunts, which seems to be a subset of the foolhardiness thing. Right? I mean, if you go boasting that you're going to go, you know, tread the paths of the dead during the, you know, the feast, the, celebra the celebration feast in Meduseld, and then you die as a consequence, that's on you, right? Nobody forced you to do that. Your death is your own fault, right? And by slaying oneself or willfully withdrawing the fea from the body. So suicide is another one, right? If you actually slay yourself or if you willfully withdraw your fare from the body, if you just check out. All those things are coupled, that those things are, are held to be a fault. Um, <laughs> David Atwee says, Cyrus gets a double whammy of this judgment. You are so correct. Um, I Forcing others to slay what in their defense? Check. Foolhardiness? Check. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. Um, yep. Cyrus, um, Cyrus is a big loser in this category. Um, uh, um, notice where this puts people at the kinslaying, right? Noldor killed at the kinslaying their own fault, right? Unlike the Teleri killed at the kinslaying, right? They're in a totally, you know, they're in a different situation there. Um, I agree, Nancy. I'm not saying, look, I'm not, I, I, I'm not trying to be judgy here, right? We've all made rash vaunts in our time. I agree. You know, I'm not saying I have no empathy for people in these kinds of positions. We're just saying 
if you die as a consequence of any of these things, right, then um, uh, it's not a good look. But notice what he says immediately afterwards, or at the least, the withdrawal from life has held a good reason for the fad to remain among the dead and not to return. It's not to say that that, it's not like a life sentence in prison, right? I mean, Mandos is not a horrible place. It's not a place of eternal punishment. It's not, a, it's, uh, it's a place of comfort, of correction, but also of comfort, right? So, um, but it is, uh, if you, if you're given a body and you screw it up through your own choices, one way or another, right? Those are pretty good reasons not to give you a second body, right? Um, it might, it might mean that um, a lifetime term in, in Mandos is really, is really right for you. Josiah, that is a wonderful question. Where does Fingolfin fall in this? Is Faye distinguished from foolhardy? <sighs> An excellent question. Um, did Fingolfin um, force Morgoth to slay him in self-defense? <laughs> I mean... You know, kind of, right? I mean, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, don't know. Um, but um, as for guilt and other matters, his judicial capacity, right? Um, you know, weighing the souls of the dead and determining their fates short and long term in the halls of waiting. Um, he says, little is known of the dealings of Mandos with the dead for several reasons, because those who have done great evil, who are few, do not return. So we don't know, right? Like, uh, we have never heard firsthand testimony from somebody who did really horrible things in life and then went to Mandos and then was reborn. We don't know what their experience was for the very good reason that none of them have ever returned to talk about it. So... Um, because those who have been under the correction of Mandos will not speak of it and indeed being healed remember little of it for they have returned to their natural courses and the unnatural and perverted is no longer in the continuity of their lives because also as has been said Though all that die are summoned to Mandos, it is within the power of the Fear of the Elves to refuse the summons, and doubtless many of the most unhappy or most corrupted spirits, especially those of the Dark Elves, do refuse, and so come to worse evil, or at best wander unhoused and unhealed without hope of return. Not so do they escape judgment forever, for Eru abideth and is over all. Judgment will come, but not from Mandos. Okay, so these are several reasons why we don't really know what happens to those who are judged to be guilty of evil in their lives, right? Um, but um, the thing that is most puzzling to me in that whole section was the bit about the continuity. Um, those who have been under the correction of Mandos will not speak of it. So those who have been reborn... Right, they were they went to Mandos, they received correction, they got reborn. So apparently things went well, right? 
uh, and they passed. They received a passing a passing grade. They got approved. You know, their visa was approved. They returned and were reborn. Right. Um, they remember little of it, for they have returned to their natural courses, and the unnatural and perverted is no longer in the continuity of their lives. Now, that appears to be a contradiction to what he said before. Remember he said before that an elf who is reborn after their childhood, right, when they grow up, they remember the whole continuity of their lives from their first childhood through their first lives to their death, their time in waiting, and then their second childhood and now their second adulthood. It will all be one continuity in their memory. And he now seems to be reversing that. Reversing that and saying they won't remember much of their time in, the, in, in waiting, in fact. Which, okay, but that would be a minor point. This is not a minor point. Notice why they don't remember. They don't remember. They had to receive correction, which means, by definition, there was evil in them. They had made bad choices. And those bad choices needed correction. So those bad choices, the evil within their fear, having been corrected, is removed, is no longer in the continuity of their lives. The evil within their fear was unnatural and perverted. So when an elf makes bad choices, uses their will, their free will, to do bad things, those bad choices, the evil that the soul, the fea of the elf falls into, is unnatural and a perversion of the way things should be, of the way that their fear should act. And thus, the act of correction by Mandos consists in removing the unnatural thing, removing the perversion. And that's why they don't remember it, because it's gone. It's no longer in the continuity of their lives. So they're returned to what? I don't know. Innocence? They don't have any memory or experience of evil anymore? Yeah, Brian, I also would think that the reborn elf would presumably remember their bad choices. Um, I would think so, too. But maybe not. So, again, as I said before, where this discussion seems to me to be moving is into this bigger question of what does it mean? Are elves fallen in some sense? Are they corrupted? Is there original sin among the elves in any sense? How marred is Arda? What does that mean? What does that look like? And how does that affect the elves? Um, elves are and remain good people, we learn in The Hobbit. And that's presumably still true now, right? But what does that mean? We know they can make bad choices. So now we have... We're, we, he's although he's still kind of talking about marriage and rebirth, he's now getting into even bigger metaphysical questions, right? And the debate of the Valar, which we'll talk about next time, 
um, is centrally involved. It's when his attention is going to be turning much more centrally to these questions, right? Okay, let's, um, well, so let's just stop here. And this is an awkward place to stop, but um, let's just stop here. We'll pick up this discussion thinking about marring and, and sin and fallenness and all this kind of thing. We'll, we'll think about this stuff next time. Um, and we'll do the debate of the Valar. And of course, we will pause as we're doing it to talk about the characterization of the Valar in which I am super interested uh, when we read that section. So we'll see how much of the debate of the Valar we can do next time. But I'm not going to kid you. I don't have many aspirations to get much further uh, than uh, uh, than the the debate of the Valar there. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Good night. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.